This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hello everyone, welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Fall 2017 Season Episode 5. We're continuing our discussion of Land of the Lustrous with Episode 5 today, and I have to say, well, this episode didn't quite resolve the way I thought it would, but it could have. And because it didn't, we got to learn a lot about some characters and their actions, because that was what led the plot to develop in the way that it did. Now this was a characterization-heavy episode, probably at the expense of pacing, but overall it just convinced me that the show was a good choice for analysis. So, let's dive right in. Goal-wise, we start off with the goal that we left at the end of last episode, which is that Ventricosis wants to get her brother back. It's the whole reason she has set up Fos in the first place. Now she accomplishes this goal, but instead of trading Fos for her brother and then going about her way, as she no doubt imagined, instead they get away without actually having met the terms of the deal. While I don't know if the Lunarians really would have let them go if they'd come to an agreement, certainly now the Lunarians have good reason to come after them. Ventricosis got her brother and herself away, but the story doesn't end there. So Fos's goal of wanting a new job, she waited so long to have the encyclopedia job, and now even that has been taken from her. Now even though she said she wanted any other job than that, when it's actually taken away from her, she's upset about it. Partially this is a shuffling of her priorities and her goals that we've talked about already, but I do think this calls back to our talk about value versus purpose in earlier episodes, where even if she didn't like the job, the job gave her some sense of purpose and therefore some sense of worth. Now while she is upset about the loss of her job right now, technically, doesn't this best position her to be available for a new job? The thing she actually wanted? Related to that, Congo wants to find a job for everyone. Let everyone have a sense of purpose, a role in society. He seemed like he might have accomplished this back in episode one, only to now take that job away from Fos. I mean, poor Congo, he finds the most innocuous job he can think of, Inventing an industry that doesn't even exist in the society, and probably doesn't need to, and Fos still finds a way to screw it up. While this is a step backwards to the goal of having everyone find a role in society, his own comments on Cinnabar's job and what he's working there indicate that he hadn't quite nailed that down before Fos anyway. A good part of this series already is about how Cinnabar and Fos don't quite fit into their society, so the fact that the two of them really don't have jobs that he's happy with actually makes sense. The fact that it continues to be a goal for him is, I think, pretty important, and will no doubt contribute to where the story goes in the future. Speaking of potential new roles, Faust still has that goal of wanting to join in the fight. She attaches a lot of value to fighting, probably still, and this episode ended with her being able to move at apparently incredible pace. Now, I don't see how this solves the main problem of Faust being so weak, but at the very least, it certainly ups her prospects for being able to contribute to any kind of fight. I don't know if joining the fight is more important to Fos than finding a place for Cinnabar. I suspect that it's not, but as long as those goals are not actually at cross-purposes, I could see Fos pulling herself out of the doldrums with the prospect of being able to do the things she's wanted to do from the beginning. 
Finally, we will add on the new goal of Oculiats wanting to save his people. He says specifically that he wants to get back his mother and his father and his friends, but I think we can infer that he kind of means his entire people, all of the Admirabilis. This isn't really that unexpected of a goal. Aventricosis probably shares it as well, but since he voiced it, we're going to attach it to him. And I would say that this is definitely the kind of goal that we can expect to have some intersection with other narratives uh, as the story continues. Coming next to conflicts, we will start off with Cinnabar's despair. I'll talk about this a bit more in characterization, but the guilt that she feels once she realizes that she's probably responsible for Fos going out into the sea is at the very least not despair. Like at the very least it's not apathy anymore. Just like love and hate are not opposites really, because they're both strong feelings, the actual opposite of loving someone is being indifferent to them. Despair, like Cinnabar has been suffering, is much more like apathy, a lack of caring, of being emotionally invested. The strong feelings she's having now, even if they're driven by guilt, are still overall a positive change. Having a stake in her society again, even if it's just connected to a single person, is still a step on the way to getting this conflict off the board for good. Next is the conflict of that Fos may have been changed, and now we say that she may have been changed again. Before, we noted that Fos being able to speak to the Admirabilis was a change that may cause some complications for her later on. For example, if the Admirabilis and the Gems cross paths again in the future, Fos will, by necessity, be involved in that. Now, we have her changing again with whatever's happened with her legs. Like, okay, it seems like she can run fast now for whatever reason, but is that the end of it? She was already fused with an Admirabilis shell when Ventricosis ate her, and from that she appeared to learn how to speak to them. Well, here she's fused with one of their shells again, even in a different manner, so I think it's reasonable to assume there may be some side effects. Good side effects? Bad side effects? We don't know. It's a big unknown, which makes it an ongoing conflict. Now, the conflict we added at the end of last episode, that Fos was stranded off of the island, has been resolved. She was rescued by Ventricosis, basically. While this may have some cascading reactions in the rest of the story, the conflict itself is done. And it did so technically without any of the aid of the gems. Like, even if Cinnabar doesn't drag her to the office, they'll probably find her either way eventually. She was just speeding up the inevitable. So, that one comes off the board. Finally then a new conflict that the gems are exhausted from searching for Fos all night. This is referenced particularly by Rutile during the search, where she's trying to argue with Congo without actually arguing with Congo, and it's clear that she wants them to call off the search for the time being. She cites the dangerous possibility that they may have to face the Lunarians the next day while being exhausted. This conflict actually has a visual callback as well, where we show Neptunite and Benitoite at the beginning in a scouting position when they're all looking for Fos, and they're still alert and energized. And then we show them again at the end in the same place, and they're not alert. Benitoite is hunched down, and they even decide that they need to try resting and shifts. With that bell ringing at the very end of the episode, it seems the exhaustion is not going to get its chance to naturally dissipate as they rest over the next few days. This conflict is going to come to bear in this next episode. Characterization is next, and it has been a real strength of this series so far. This episode may even be the best yet at continuing to shape our understanding of the players in the story. I'm going to do something slightly different with this section today. 
We'll talk about some of the more minor players in this episode first. That part's not going to be any different than normal. But then there's a five minute or so span near the middle of this episode that I really want to talk about altogether. Because the reactions between those characters is what aids our developing understanding of them. And so breaking them apart into individual character sections would be a little bit tedious. Because of this, they're not up here on the board either. We'll start with the Lunarians. I said before that we may get our first glimpse of the Lunarians as characters this time. They still appear to be hive mind, so maybe we shouldn't think of them as a character exactly. But we do get to see that their previously mentioned greed is for real. Having one gem in hand, they still want to press for more. When they're refused, they mutilate the other member of the deal. And then, when Oculiots falls off the platform, they're definitely gearing up to kill Ventricosis. So from the list of qualities we may ascribe to them, I think we can put a line through honorable. Now we suspected it before now, but either the Lunarians aren't really dying when they vaporize, or else they are really, really cavalier about death. When Oculiots wakes up and starts to crush a few of them, they seem unconcerned. A couple of them don't even make an attempt to move. They're all like, oh no, I'm gonna die, I guess. I think Ventricosis' two choice adjectives from last time, eerie and incomprehensible, are pretty much on the mark. So Red Barrel, who's been named before, but has just been the girl who does their costumes, at least gets a little more depth this time. Her humorous preoccupation with fashion gives a moment of humor that actually makes it reasonable for Rutile to make the leap that Fos may have gone to the sea. So her being one-dimensional up to this point is kind of useful for that scene. But toward the end of the episode, she suddenly becomes the voice of optimism and patience. Both when Fos first realizes the legs won't move by themselves, and then again when they set Fos up outside to let the sunshine do its thing. She even fends off a curious gem from bothering Fos while she's doing her rehabilitation, if you will. So just a little bit on Bort, she didn't have any lines this time, but that doesn't mean that we didn't find out more about her. Now I thought it was possible that she may even refuse to look for Fos, since she obviously kind of has it out for her, but she instead seemed to be the one who was most vigorous in the search. She was even inventively collecting the bioluminescent jellyfish into her hair to help her see better, and swimming through the water instead of just walking along the bottom. She's so energetic and enthusiastic that she seems to be the most exhausted one by the end. She's even draped over Kongo's shoulder, as though she can't support her own body anymore. Now, this may have nothing at all to do with Fos. It may simply be that because Kongo requested this, and because his praise matters to her so much, that was all the motivation she needed to give 110%. I think it's worth noting that even if it's for a cause that she may not believe in exactly, she still gives her all. Rutil gets a little bit here as well. During the search, as I mentioned, she argues without arguing about how exhausted the gems are and how they're not used to what they're doing and so forth. Now she's arguing from a place of logic, but you can tell by her expression that she is actually worried about her other peers. Now, although the series is exploiting the scientist-doctor character archetype to help us understand her from the get-go, this is actually not the first time she's displayed some empathy with her other gems. She's not purely standoffish, purely cold logic. Why this example is interesting is that she's in contrast to Congo, who's sort of the de facto leader, spiritual head, whatever he is. They do, however, remind us of her primary characterization there at the end, where she's so outraged at any affront to her medical bay, she doesn't even realize what's happening or that the person she's talking to is Fos. So Jade is next, and I think Jade and Rutil are both kind of the co-leaders of the gyms under Congo. It's really kind of the feeling I get. It makes sense then that they're often competing with each other, picking on each other as we've seen. Jade demonstrates once again that she is kind of the teacher's pet, tattletale, brown-nosing type. 
She's the kind of kid that would remind the teacher when they forgot to assign homework. Jade, I think, likes being in charge, likes being important, likes that high station. So when Fos ends up forgetting who she is, that is especially devastating to Jade. I think some other people wouldn't have cared so much, like Bort, for example. But to Jade, that's quite an affront to her ego, which is kind of funny. So we'll talk about Master Kungo next, and in order to talk about him effectively, I first need to talk a little bit more about the speculation I made last time about what might happen this episode. I thought last time that the chance of Cinnabar being caught in a trap by the Lunarians was pretty good, and it was totally set up to happen. Daya does go to Cinnabar like I thought. She does float the idea of Cinnabar going to look for Fos. Ventricosis does consider the idea of using Fos as bait, and concludes that Cinnabar would be someone they could probably catch that way. But two things prevent this from happening. The first is Ventricosis' decision while she's bargaining for her brother, and we'll get to that. The other is that Congo decides to rally the entire island in the search for Fos. And he's relentless, likely driving the gems far beyond their ability and using up a ton of resin in the process. Even when Rutil casts doubt on the wisdom of this, even when he knows he's putting the gems at risk, he presses on, and he probably would have continued to press on if Fos hadn't been found. When talking about Rutil a moment ago, I mentioned that she is mostly logic-driven, but has moments where we know she has a compassion, she has a heart. I think for all his composure, Kongo is actually an emotionally-driven guy. He was distraught at Fos being missing, and probably went against his own better judgment in the pursuit of her. I mean, we get yet another example that King Kongo here has anger issues. At least now we know how that building got all those cracks. Even knowing the consequences, he still can't help himself but unleash his anger for a moment, breaking Fos's arms. But he immediately regains that composure and catches her and makes the decision to suspend Fos's job. I really don't think this emotional aspect of him is an act. I think that is who he is. I think the careful, controlled facade of his is the act. But these combination of qualities, I think, cements him as the stern father figure that he's been to this point. You understand why the gems treat him the way they do. You understand what his role in the society is. So now we'll talk about that five or so minute segment I talked about that has so much characterization in it. If you took out the parts that are unnecessarily long introductions and actions, it's actually less than five minutes of total scene time starting from when Ventricosis is arguing and negotiating with Lunarians, until the moment that Cinnabar deposits Fos in Rutil's medical bay. We're going to work our way through this more or less in order, and we'll talk about the things we learn about these characters through the exchange. Now, the negotiations with the Lunarians starts off with Ventricosis obviously being pressed to produce more gems. She toys in her mind with the idea of using Fos as bait, and realizes that because of the relationship between Fos and Cinnabar, this likely would work. This is something I talked about repeatedly last episode, and was the direction I thought this episode may head. Where it changed is that Ventricosis sees Fos's distress when Fos realizes what she's proposing. I said last time that we would need to watch Ventricosis to see how she thought of the gems now that she's lived among them, and it now appears that she came away with an understanding of them and some empathy with them, and in this moment of negotiating for her brother's freedom, she decides there's a line that she actually doesn't want to cross. This makes her later decision, when they decide they'll return Fos to her island, a little more understandable, and cements what we learn about Ventricosis through this simple consideration and refusal of this plan. Now, Ventricosis' refusal of this plan leads the Lunarians to burning her arm off, in case there was any question about who the bad guys in the story are. The Lunarians' choice of negotiating tactics turns out to be a poor one, as this leads directly to Oculiate's dramatic introduction. 
Koi. Well, maybe not that dramatic. After the bit of action where he's burned and also crushes some Lunarians, and they do a neat thing where they mix a very deep voice with a chorus of very high baby-like voices, thus helping us understand that he is a simple giant, he falls into the ocean and transforms into his original form in a very similar manner to how Ventricosis did. Once in this form, he mows through Lunarians with brutal efficiency, which makes me wonder, how did the Lunarians capture him in the first place? I mean, he's like the Bort of the Admirabilis. He's even androgynous and all in black, and even has long things coming off the back of him that he uses to fight with. Speaking of aesthetics, I said last time that I suspected we'd find out that Ventricosis and her brother were very different in appearance. There seemed to be a bit of a theme as far as variation between the three sentient races goes, and that guess has been borne out. Like, just take a moment and appreciate this character design. You see this, cosplayers? I expect someone out there to rise to this challenge. Now here is where things get interesting. Once Oculiots is awake, Ventricosis' attitude kind of changes. Obviously he's very important to her, or she wouldn't have gone through this, but it seems they weren't without some friction in their previous life. I gather from their interaction that he was higher in rank or status or something than her before, and he seems used to being in a position of dominance over her. Her little criticism of him prompts him to respond with, my my, how bold you have become, which implies she's violating some normal power disparity between them. But he also says it with more of an amused expression than an affronted one. She also says that he knows nothing but gluttony and aggression. Well, these traits are also things she said about the Lunarians, and she doesn't mean them as virtues. She is basically on guard with him through this entire scene. Of course, she might also be put out that she was apparently the smell of food that woke him up, so, you know. Now, Oculiat sees Fos and immediately discerns how valuable a target she would be to the Lunarians. He also immediately makes the connection that this is how his freedom was negotiated for, and is thankful that they still have Fos to be used as a bargaining chip in the future. Now they can potentially negotiate for their mother and father and friends. And as he says, it may be their last chance to be freed from a life of domestication. Now, Fos responds to everything he says. I'll talk about that in a second. I think it's interesting, though, that Oculiates ascribes Fos's lack of concern to her immortality, believing perhaps that the gems have no fear. And he is overall surprisingly frank about the whole affair. He even wants to ensure that Fos knows she may never return home. When Fos is agreeable to it on the condition that they keep Cinnabar out of it, he accepts. And I actually believe he means that, too. This whole exchange suggests to me that he isn't treacherous, just very pragmatic. Later, when his sister intervenes and wants to change this plan, he doesn't resist this or pull rank on her or anything. This whole scene and exchange is basically everything we know about Oculiates, and I feel like we have a pretty good idea of his character now. Now, what is Ventricosis feeling during this whole exchange? They show her looking at Fos, missing her legs and part of her face, all while she herself sits there missing an arm in an attempt to save her brother. So I think Ventricosis is here completely understanding what Fos means and what she's going through. This was all a big risk for Ventricosis as well. If you remember last time, Fos said she was willing to face the danger and the risk of going into the ocean as a result of her promise to Cinnabar, and even takes ownership of it, saying that she was the one who started off talking about promises. Right before that betrayal last time, Ventricosis tried to relate to Fos that the two of them really were in the same boat. I think that is how she is feeling right now as well. And I think Fos understands from the other side. When Fos says, that's not fair, and wonders how she could be mad hearing that, the implication is, how can I be mad knowing that you're in the same position I am? She should be mad and hurt at being tricked and betrayed. Instead, she understands. 
and instead just use the situation to try to help Cinnabar just a little more by getting them to agree to leave her out of it. Even though I think Ventricosis was empathetic to Fos, hearing Fos express this empathy to the siblings, I think is the moment the decision is made. A kinship of a kind has developed. To reinforce this, we have this next scene. Rockliatus is going over there and he stops a Ventricosis, who yanks on his tentacle, arm, whatever that is, and goes over to sit down by Fos. Now while Fos is resigned to her fate, and she's probably more mad at herself at being tricked than anything else, she still chooses this moment to forgive Ventricosis. I mean, Fos could agree to go along with this and be a hostile but cooperating hostage. Absolving Ventricosis of guilt on top of that is such a strong display of empathy. After that, it's really no surprise Ventricosis chooses the way she does. To talk a little more about Fos in this scene, I'd like to point out that her despondence upon seeing what the much younger Ventricosis has accomplished is an interesting counterpoint to her reaction to finding out that Cinnabar is in a lot of ways weaker and in a worse position than her. With Cinnabar, the idea that someone is worse off than her just galvanizes her. With Ventricosis, the idea that someone younger than her could be more accomplished just depresses her. It fills her with inadequacy. Perhaps she's still stuck on deriving meaning from the importance of what one accomplishes? It may not be that exactly, but it's certainly an understandable response. But as Fos furthers the gap between them in her mind, admitting how inadequate she now feels, Ventricosis closes that gap with a gesture of affection and intimacy, surprising Fos. Oculiatus knows this is not the gesture of a captor to a hostage and questions Ventricosis about what she's doing. And she justifies the decision by saying, if we don't change our ways, we're no different than the Lunarians, are we? And apparently, that says it all. We learned so much about the siblings, Oculiatus' entire character, where Ventricosis really is after the cliffhanger from last time, and even how Fos responds in this kind of situation. So much characterization was accomplished in such a short span of time. Really just a fantastic scene. Now, for the second part of this big characterization section in this episode, we cut to where Cinnabar is looking on as the other gems go into the ocean in search of Fos. Now, Cinnabar has come down to the coast, correctly guessing Fos's motivation. Seeing the other gems looking for Fos probably stops her from going in, and so she tries to convince herself that it doesn't involve her. And what she feels instead is guilt. She doesn't want to blame herself, but she does. Talked about guilt already, and you have to wonder if she also harbors some guilt about the past, the things she's done to the island, potentially some things she's done to other gems, even if it's inadvertent. Now I said last time that Cinnabar's desire to be taken away to the moon might be the closest you can get to suicidal in this society. People who are suicidal are often under the belief that everyone else would be better off without them, that their existence only detracts from others, that whatever their pain is just causes pain and misery to the people that surround them. They conclude that the best solution is to take away that pain and whatever grief it causes for everyone else and the fastest, easiest way to do that is by taking their own life. It's a misconception, I think, that suicide always comes from a place of selfishness. There's often a belief, a mistaken belief, that what they're doing is helping, that they're removing themselves and the trouble they cause. I think this line of reasoning applies to the cinnabar we've known so far. And as much as she doesn't want to be involved, when she thinks about what she's said, especially the part about being better off without her, the guilt breaks through. She's no longer thinking, poor me, but poor Fos. And then when that Fos washes up beside her and she sees her broken in body, broken in voice, 
and that Fos's first instinct is to apologize to Cinnabar, promising that she'll do better tomorrow? Well, all you have to do is watch the emotions play over Cinnabar's face to know exactly how she feels in this moment. But of course, when asked directly to forgive Fos, she says no, but she says it without rancor, and she turns away, and her head is down. Fos is actually amused, I think, and she's certainly not dissuaded from her self-imposed quest about finding a place for Cinnabar. And no matter how much Cinnabar doesn't want to admit it, I think she really hopes Fos succeeds. But she also doesn't want Fos to destroy herself in the pursuit, which is the guilt that she's feeling, and it's that same guilt that drove her down to the ocean side in the first place. Now, despite Cinnabar's tough front, she actually really is one of the most expressive of all the gems. I mean, look at this. You don't even have to know what Daya said to understand exactly what she said. I also love the way that the little floaty mercury blobs react to her emotional state. They show a sort of distress pattern when Daya first bothers her, and also again when you realize that she realizes that she's probably the cause of Fos's quest into the sea. Not only is this a way to get a little more of a payoff from them having to animate those things floating around her, it also reminds us that her control over the mercury is tenuous at best. I think she would much prefer to hide what she's feeling all the time, but even if she's turned away, the little mercury bubbles are going to betray her. Not that it matters in that scene, since Daya is too busy trying to ship the two of them to even notice. The other thing I find interesting about Cinnabar from the scene is that I think she was going into the ocean before recognizing that the others were doing just that. But when she finds Fos, instead of telling the other gems and calling off the search, basically interacting with them at all, she instead drags Fos back to Rutil's office. Now, what is it in her past that causes her to avoid the gems so deliberately? I mean, she could have saved them a lot of trouble. You know, back at the end of episode one, she made a cryptic statement that still hasn't really been explored, but she says, but no, I can't trust them. We don't know what that means yet, but whatever lies across her past is still directing her present. Now before moving on, I want to say just a little bit more about Fos. We'll talk about her more in theme, actually, but there's just a few things I want to emphasize from this episode. As low as Fos was during most of this episode, it actually ends with her ecstatic. Moments before that, she was back to being despondent again. Upset at losing her job, at losing her legs, at the fact that her replacements weren't working, she's there left by herself in the sun and even knocks herself over. She only snaps out of this funk when she thinks about that self-imposed purpose. Once again, the thought of abandoning Cinnabar to her fate is all that Fos requires to be extraordinary. And then there's... there's this. Man, how can you not root for Fos? So let's run through all the new world-building details we learned this time. It appears that the Lunarians may communicate telepathically. When Ventricosis is negotiating with them, we hear her side of the conversation, and it's obvious that she's hearing something as well, but it seems that Fos is not, because we, the audience, are not. Fos is our perspective character through all these scenes. The fact that we don't hear it suggests that she doesn't hear it, and all of the other otherwise ethereal things about Lunarians make me think that telepathy makes a lot of sense. Now, when Oculiats wakes up, he does so apparently to the smell of food. Now, this happens immediately after Lunarians burn his sister's arm off, and they even show little smoke clouds rising, which suggests that food in this case means his sister's burned flesh. So if that was the trigger that roused him, you know, much to the chagrin of the Lunarians, what does this mean that they normally eat? Like, we saw Ventricosis eat a variety of things before, including Fos, when she was a big, dumb snail. But if his own sister being cooked, basically, smells like food, 
Are the Lunarians feeding them their own kind up there? Like, is this a tiny hint that we have some kind of awful horror story on our hands? I mean, if you want to ratchet the Lunarians one more notch up on the old evil scale, cannibalism's a pretty good way to do that. Enforcing cannibalism on a captive species would be probably one more notch. I want to point out that Oculiatus recognized his name even in big, dumb, cute form. This lends at least a little credence to what I said before, that Ventricosis and the Lunarians must have been able to communicate before she was actually sent in to get Fos. When he does become his old self again, and he sees Fos, he calls her one of the Bones. This refers back to our soul flesh bone story, and it suggests that bones is simply what they refer to the gems as. Obviously that is normal for them, and it lends some credence to the story that Ventricosis told us last time. We see the little black cloud platform breaking apart there at the end of that scene. We've gathered from context clues already that killing or vaporizing the big Lunarian causes the whole thing to go away. This time we see that it can actually break up a little bit slowly, and the way the siblings were totally nonchalant about it tells us that this is standard operating procedure. This little detail of the world overall is a great example of show don't tell. No one in the series has said, oh, you know, you just gotta kill the big one and then the whole platform will disappear. Or that big one is the one generating the little cloud that they float on. No one's come out and said this to us. Just watching, it's obvious this is what's happening. That is the heart of Show Don't Tell, a very good detail by the show creators. We find out that Fos is 300, and apparently it's her birthday. Happy birthday, Fos. Here's some new legs. I gotta say, 300 years is probably a very long time to not have a job or a real purpose. It's actually no wonder Fos is the way she is. It's actually surprising she's not more of a brat than she uh, begins the series as. During the scene where the gems are searching for Fos, we have Rutile, probably under Congo's orders, painting everyone with the resin that protects their powder finish from being washed off by the salt water. Last episode, she brought up that they had a lot of resin thanks to the cold winter, but not a lot of the powder stuff. I think it's a nice callback to that, and it brings up the question about whether they used up a lot of their resin in the search for Fos. That may have consequences later. Now, despite how desperate Kongo must have been feeling, he did not go into the water himself. I suggested last time that he may not be able to leave the island. I don't have any real good basis for that, kind of feeling I have, it's supported only by the prohibition about them going into the water. The fact that he doesn't step foot off land at all makes me think there's probably a reason. Maybe he can't go, maybe there's some other consequence to him stepping into the water, but in a situation like this where he is obviously desperate, the fact that he stays on the shore the whole time has to mean something. I think he really can't go in the water slash leave the island. We got a little bit of lore filled in about the microorganisms that live inside the gems and make them work the way they are. First of all, they are called inclusions, and I'm sure that's how they'll be referred to from now on. We also learned that other things can be attached to the gems that are gem-like, so long as there are none of these inclusions already in there. Not to try to build some theory of consciousness from this, but I am guessing that is how they're getting around the idea of putting gems together into some awful abomination. It's either all the same type of microorganisms in the same family or whatever, or the gems don't work at all. Thanks to the loss of her legs and the addition of legs, which I assume don't have memories of their own since there's no inclusions, Fos has potentially lost up to a third of her memories. We haven't had a whole lot of discussion about how that memory structure works, what determines where memories are stored or anything like that, but losing a third of your body mass could potentially be a lot of memories. We see that she doesn't remember Jade. I feel like that's just to remind us that that's a thing, and maybe she's forgot something more important in the future. Finally, a little world-building callback. 
During the scene where the Lunarians first drop Ventricosis, one of the gems sticks her head out and wonders why the bell wasn't ringing if there were Lunarians there, which tells us that the bell ringing is an indication that the Lunarians are showing up, or at the very least, some threat. The way the episode ends, contrasting Fos's excited demeanor with the ominous bit of the bell ringing, suggests that some new crisis is about to unfold, but it doesn't tell us what it is. We're assuming, based on the world building so far, that bell ringing means Lunarians, but I guess it could mean any crisis. Now in our theme category, these are the four themes that I most felt were represented this time. We'll start off with individual versus society. It's interesting that when we first talked about this theme, it was in examining how Cinnabar was sequestered from the rest of society, even though this was demonstrably bad for her. There's a situation where the individual is suffering for the good of society. This episode, we have an example of the society suffering for the individual, as the gems work themselves to exhaustion to try to rescue Fos. Now this is actually different from an example we've had before, where the gems were peers pulling together to pull the snail shell up out of the ocean, and then spending the whole night chipping Fos out of it to restore her back to her former self. That was the gems' peers working to help one of their number. This time, it's a top-down order from Master Kongo, and I think there's a chance that a lot of the gems wouldn't have kept going without his presence or his insistence. I think for sure that if this was Jade in charge, then Rutil's little hints about exhaustion would be less hints and more of her shouting at Jade. So what we have is Congo choosing the individual person of Fos to the detriment of the society that he heads or has created or is responsible for. Now, maybe it's because they're immortal and they don't reproduce, but this seems like an unusual emphasis on the well-being of the one versus the well-being of the many for what otherwise seems like a pretty egalitarian society. So far, the individual versus society theme has no clear winner. We have a little bit from salvation from unlikely sources. How often is it that your betrayer is also your savior? Now, while the fledgling relationship between Fos and Ventricosis makes this turnaround plausible, I think this theme gets further emphasized when that betrayer also provides a means to redress their wrongs. They, they bring the things that will eventually become Fos's substitute legs. And they may have done more than just bring her back to normal. Fos apparently moves pretty fast now, right? Well, if Fos is now more capable of, well, anything, how does that affect a lot of our goals and conflicts? A lot of these ride on the fact that Fos is pretty inadequate at a lot of things. A more accomplished, more competent, even more confident Fos would be a full manifestation of this theme, because she is the most unlikely source for salvation for the society. In Existential Angst, it's now Fos's turn to flirt with the edge of despair. Like, how sedate and resigned is Fos throughout most of this episode? The only emotion she really shows in the first two-thirds is the fear and distress she feels right in front of the Lunarians, and the awe she feels when Oculatius is revealed. Otherwise, she is the very picture of defeated. Even almost at the end, she wonders, how can I be worse off than when I started? She lost her legs, she got betrayed, and then she lost her job on top of everything else. As bad and as low and as useless as she felt when this whole series started, she feels like she's only gone backwards from there, and it's reflected in her attitude. I mean, the moment the Lunarians got her and this episode opened, she knew she'd screwed up. Now she persists in this state right up until the moment she realizes it's not going to do Cinnabar any good. And that's the moment she's able to stand again. 
for the first time the whole episode, she's able to move under her own power. In other words, existential angst in this series, time and again, has been countered with a sense of purpose. As long as the characters have something to work toward, or feel that they bring value to others, the existential crisis is kept at bay. Lastly, the metamorphosis theme. This is best demonstrated in two different characters this time. It's most obvious in the physical metamorphoses that both Oculeatus and Phos go through. Both of them are restored to being whole, but different. Aphos's change in this respect is the more obvious one, but I get the sense that while Oculiats may have returned physically to what he was before the Lunarians, his actual situation is anything but. The change in his world from before to now is actually more dramatic than his change from giant slug thing to his more humanoid form. For Phos and her change, there's actually a strong visual reinforcement on top of the fact that she looks different. There's a scene at the end where she's sitting alone and looking a little forlorn about being a Frankenstyle mashup of two different materials. In a fit of frustration, she knocks herself over. And when she does, we see a little creature fly by. It looks at first like a butterfly, but it actually is not a butterfly. It's more like two different creatures spliced together. Remember me harping on the butterfly metaphor we had back in episode one and how universal a symbol of metamorphosis the butterfly is? Well, could this little bug's flyby be any more direct? The thing doesn't really look like a butterfly, but it sure does fly like one. Phos no longer looks exactly like one of the gems, but... Now the idea of Phos reborn into something new isn't just represented by the insect encounter. The very first image of Phos in this episode is her being drawn out of the ocean in the Lunarian's net. It's very drawn out and demands that we pay attention to it. This is important. Well. Do you remember how Phos and all the gems are born? The mythology states that they're formed in the deeps and then rise to the surface formed as something new. Leaving the waters is, for them, a bit like the act of birth. That water as birth motif shows up in another place as well. If you pay attention to the opening credits, you'll see that Phos starts off in a fetal position and then wakes up. And all the bubbles and coloration around her indicate that this is taking place underwater. Not too far afterwards, she breaks apart, and we see pieces of her flying around, and the reflection of her and Cinnabar on pieces of gems. Then a bunch of little crystals in Phos's color form together to create the series title image. When this breaks apart though, it's no longer just Phos's color, but a bunch of different colors. Phos, by breaking apart and then reforming, is born again into something more diverse than when she started out. Well, does that sound familiar? All right, so let's move on to what to watch for. Talked about it already, but I wanna see what it is in Cinnabar's past that makes her have guilt towards the others. We've had very limited examples of her interacting with anyone besides Fos, and we know already that she and Fos had no history before this. So we want to watch any of her interactions with other people to see if they give us clues about what happened. I mean, I feel like letting them continue to search for Fos when Fos was found has to be more than just a fear of harming them, right? Like there has to be more to her not going and talking to them or wanting to interact with them than just the consequences of her Mercury, right? Plus there's her comments and about not being able to trust them and so forth. So I wanna watch her interactions with others to see if we can't glean what's going on. Let's see, I also mentioned already about Congo not going in the water. I'm still expecting we'll have some explanation for that because I think that is a thing. We'll obviously be watching the very next episode to see how the exhaustion affects the gems. This is going to be a conflict, I'm pretty sure. 
It might cause them to act in a different way or interact in a different way. And either one of those could be potentially devastating. Now we might not have to wait very long to see how that exhaustion bears out, because as mentioned, the bell is ringing at the end, the Lunarians are probably showing up. But that raises a question for me that I still want answers for, which is, why aren't the Lunarians simply engaging in a battle of attrition with the gems? The gems have to win every single time or else their numbers decrease. The Lunarians only have to win half a dozen times, and then the effects would probably start to snowball. Since the Lunarians are capable of coming twice in one day, and since the gems are capable of exhaustion, why not do that? I'm sure there's a reason. I just want us to watch and see why that may be, how is it going to explain it, what other pieces of the way this world works are we missing. Now finally I want to talk about where the series might be going, or the tone or pace that we might be approaching. And the detail I'm seizing on to be watching for this particularly is her being suspended from the encyclopedia job. Now I suspected from the beginning that this show is not going to be about watching a gym write an encyclopedia, right? At some point or another that was probably going to be put on hold. Now it could have been that if this series was a different kind of series. It could have concluded with some successful compilation of gym knowledge and everyone clapping and happy music and everyone learning a valuable lesson about how it was the journey to complete it and not the success of it, right? But for that to really be the story, this would need to be a low stakes, slice of life type of show. Unfortunately for our characters, it's not that type of show. Mortality and purpose and consequences and near misses have been a part of the story from the word go. It is far more likely to get worse before it gets better. Suspending this somewhat meaningless task is perhaps a signal that the time for low stakes affairs is over and we should be watching for things to get very serious very soon. Finally, speculation. I would say that for the Admirabilis, seeing the gems now as of a kind with them means that the two of them are almost certainly going to intersect again in the future. Like this is the very first step towards an alliance against the Lunarians. Right now the show seems very set up for this type of possibility, perhaps after the gems suffer some sort of setback. As to who seeks out whom, I don't really know yet, but I think this is definitely something that they intend to happen mentioned this a bit already, but Rutil's statements that they could very well have to face the Lunarians tomorrow seems like ominous foreshadowing. Although the bell could be for something else, I suspect we're going to see the Lunarians next time, and I also suspect this battle is not going to go as well as past battles have gone. For the gems, I mean. Speaking of Rutil, so she doesn't get involved in the fight, and she's also not involved in the search, at least going out into the water. As Jade later points out, if you crumble out here, who's going to put you back together? But is it possible that Rutil is actually very coordinated? Has a lot of physical prowess? The scene where she almost trips on the spine of the shell and pulls off this crazy flip and catch seems to hint that she may have some hidden depths. Might she one day have to show it and get broken in the process, thus disabling the gem's ability to repair themselves? I think at this point we've been fed enough pieces to understand that that possibility exists. It would certainly be an example of things getting worse for the gems before it gets better. Alright, so for the next little bit of speculation, I need to point out something about character pattern. Euclase got a little moment last time to show us that she has some depths, that she is introspective, that she's thoughtful, that she's sensitive, but we had just a little bit of interaction with her before that. Just enough so we saw her, what she looks like, that she goes around with Jade, name, face, voice, right? This time, something similar happened with Red Barrel. We'd seen her enough to put the two together, 
but she was totally one-dimensional flat character until the little bit of characterization she got here at the end. Well, as part of that scene, a new gem named Alex shows up that we've had no interaction with before. Now her one-dimensional characterization at the moment seems to be an obsession with the Lunarians, but if this pattern continues, maybe she gets a little extra depth in the future? Like maybe she has some overlooked observations or hidden knowledge about the Lunarians that will end up becoming useful? The series has established this pattern of introducing characters so far, so this actually wouldn't be much of a surprise. They love to put little bits of information in episodes right before an episode where it actually becomes a little more important. Finally, next episode, I think we will finally see a real threat to their homeland. We may even lose a major player to that society's stability, like Rutil or Kungo or even Jade or Bort. I mean, we'll be around the midpoint for the series after the end of next episode, and that's a pretty good place for an escalation that includes a loss of a character. Now, I won't take odds on who it will be, because they've given us good reasons to suspect any one of those characters, which is really how I prefer it. And this episode gave us a way the story could progress, but then certain characters' decisions changed that outcome. They were believable changes that they made, but it took the story in a little bit different direction. By that same pattern of thinking, some of the characters who have been set up to be almost infallible may instead be shown to not be so. Having the seemingly unbeatable Congo or Bort be beaten would be an example of that. Having Rutile fail to fix someone or be no longer able to fix anyone would be one. And even just having those expectations may be something the creators set out to intentionally go against. I mean, I think they've demonstrated a good grasp of audience expectations to this point. So they have to know that we're suspecting the shoe is going to drop. And so certainly the most superlative members of the society are likely to be the ones on the chopping block. Either way, I suspect we will not have to wait long for things to get really real. So I will see you next time when hopefully things have gotten really real. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearly on red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.